This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Jeff, I'm going to need some ID. Oh, oh, oh my God. I was like, what has she got for this one? And I'm actually really impressed. That's great. I didn't plan that at all. But <laughs> That's like, an amazing opening. Identification. I, we watched Identity. We watched the movie Identity from 2003, starring John Cusack, from the director of Logan, 310 to Yuma, and some other good movies. Oh, nice. Yeah, all like right. that recent Wolverine movie, Logan. Yeah, I love Logan. Yeah, that was great. Oh. So let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. There was a storm. stuck and we couldn't get out we couldn't get out because of the storm but the roads were all flooded and i could use a room i'm not staying here are you out of your mind there is no place else to go what happened to the motel people started dying and then their bodies they disappeared nobody in there that's not possible i saw what happened we all saw what happened this doesn't make any sense maybe there's some connection between all of us like what my birthday next week. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Whoa. All right. Montage City, USA. <laughs> By the end there. Oh, a little bit more thunder crashing. A more thunder. <laughs> it's a fun movie. Yeah. It, it's based on like Agatha Christie style murder mystery. Yeah. It's... Group of people have a connection, end up in a secluded place, start getting dropped off one by one. Yeah. But man. with a twist. Yeah. Some oh, some twist. of the taglines here: the secret lies within. Mm. Identity is a secret. Identity mm. is a mystery. Identity is a killer. <laughs> They're all these one things. Taglines. That's one of the taglines. <laughs> well, You're like, is it a killer? That's a little bit of a wink towards case. the spoiler alert. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah, because let's spoil this movie. It spoil it. turns out that none of them are at a motel. They're all various personalities within the mind of a serial killer. Basically, the serial killer personality needs to die so that the good personalities can live and he can go free. Yeah, but what we learn is the personality that ends up killing everybody is the child yeah, personality. Yeah, the child like personality turns out to be the murderer. Everybody and, else was yeah. fine. And he's got superhuman strength, just like Michael Myers. He can put an entire <laughs> baseball down Jake Busey's throat or yeah, whatever. Yeah, if you think back to A the details bat, of the movie, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you think back to the details of the movie, you start to realize, like, this kid couldn't have done any of that. But, <laughs> like, you can kind of make the argument... But all of it's in somebody's head anyway. Correct. This motel doesn't exist in the first place, so it's all, like, representations of his mind. Right, exactly. And plus, like, even the guy himself is, like, a big dude. Right, So, like, right. I guess ostensibly he could right. murder people, but it's just seeing the little boy, like, walk away from the giant fire or, like... <laughs> yeah, they have, like, a shot of him walking away from an explosion on a green screen. It's amazing. This little <laughs> kid just, like, suddenly in every shot just looks so evil. He's got that evil kid look. Yeah, a little, little grin of sorts. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, so what you were saying is that it's it's not a direct remake, but it definitely takes some plot points from Agatha Christie's novel, and then there were none, which mm. was later made into a movie. And it even says in the dialogue in the movie, it's like this is like that movie where the ten strangers went to an island and then they all died one by one. <laughs> I was like, like, this is like that Agatha Christie novel that we're basing this on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, weird. Have you guys remember that novel? Yeah. That's like what in the movie The Time Machine when it was like the Time Machine was a story written by H. G. Wells right. and then was made into a movie in the '60s, but not a movie in 2002. Yeah, just so just so meta. Dude. Now on IMDb I read that the novel is sometimes known as Ten Little Indians, but then of course when I Wikipedia'd it, 
I discovered that when it was first published in the United Kingdom in 1939, it was not called Ten Little Indians. It unfortunately had the N-word in it, a uh, oh, racial epithet of sorts. Shit. This was named after a British blackface song. And unfortunately, I, I listened to it, and it's a fucking bummer, and racism is gross and embarrassing. But like, <laughs> I, I think it's worth noting, because I'm, I'm not going to say the N-word, and I'm not going to play the song, but right. I, I kind of went back and forth about it a few times, because... You know, on this show, we're all about the free flow of information and being honest about our right. history and, and confronting it as opposed to turning away. Exactly, exactly. But also, like, I'm going to be talking a lot about identity later in the show. And one of the things I learned in my research is one of the huge facets about identity or certainly what differentiates it from personality, for example, is not only an element of choice or at least some amount of agency over who or what you identify with, mm -hmm. but also the blatant acknowledgement that our identity, it encompasses our relationship with the world around us and therefore the people around us as well. Mm -hmm. So yes, I had that knee jerk reaction like, no, absolutely not. No, ifs, ands, or buts, we're not going to say play that song. Fuck right. it. But I really thought about it. I was like, yeah, I am making a choice. I have the agency what to play on our show right and I certainly it is part of my identity in the world I've been socialized in that I don't want to fucking listen to that well, shit well that's the thing where when you brought this up to me my instinct was that we should play it on the show to confront you know right. our history and be honest about it and stuff and I thought that maybe we could put it in the right context but as I thought about it more it's like you can know that this exists and honestly if anybody wants to go check this out search YouTube what, what should they search YouTube for well if you I mean you even just look up the novel you'll find it on Wikipedia you'll find the the song that's yeah, associated with it. Yeah, you'll find the link. It. It's on YouTube. Like, the information is out there. It's just not something that, like, like we've decided before on this show that, like, we want to go for the more fun, exciting elements of these things. And often we dip our toe in the horrifying nature of humanity. Yeah. Whether it's prison systems, as we're going to talk about a little bit, too. Right. Like, and have talked about. There's so many different things that we've done and do and don't handle right. And we can know that, but... I, there was something about playing the actual song that seemed we would be doing it to our audience more than right. giving them the choice. Yeah, we don't want to bum everybody out. It's right. like the information's there. It doesn't mean that us not playing it eliminates racism in the world. It's right. just like, but that's not shit that I need in my headspace. Yeah. Y'all don't need it either. It's and a little too catchy of a song. <laughs> it's too catchy. You don't want that in your head. It's just darkness. But anyway, the novel itself, later American reprints and adaptations were all retitled And Then There Were None, which is after the last five words of the song. Uh -huh. And it turns out to be Christie's best-selling novel. More than 100 million copies were sold. It's also the world's best-selling mystery, one of the best-selling books of all time. I don't know what year that was taken, so I feel like maybe that's not true right. anymore but I had read that she at least in her day the only people who had sold more than her was Shakespeare and the Bible oh wow that yeah. doesn't surprise me though because when you think about the actual plot line though because in the novel it's a group of people that are lured into coming to some island under different pretexts either like visiting old friends or offers of employment blah 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 but all of these people have been complicit in the deaths of other human beings but either escaped justice or did something that you know they mm -hmm. couldn't get busted for and then the guests are charged with their respective crimes by a gramophone recording after dinner the first night and then they're Ooh. basically told like you're getting punished it's OG saw yeah. shit right yeah, you know what I mean totally. and so I just feel like that story has been told a bajillion times this was just mm -hmm. the first one so it makes sense that it was popular so a few of the film adaptations of the story they kind of give it a happy ending but identity sort of keeps the novel's ending where the killer is one of the previous guests or whatever that had faked their death mm -hmm. in this case of course it's 
just personalities and stuff. So they right. turn it on its head. But in the novel, it has a sad ending. It's like the killer commits suicide after convincing the other people to kill themselves or oh, whatever. Because yeah. it's not psychological in that way. It's just like people there. <laughs> right. The the personality thing is this movie's twist on that story. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So do you remember the poem that John Cusack keeps reciting? Like, as I was going up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He, yeah. 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 I read that that was actually an 1899 poem by an American educator and poet named William Hughes Mearns. The poem is called Antigonish, and it was inspired by reports of a ghost of a man roaming the stairs of a haunted house in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. But it's also known as the the little man who wasn't there and was actually turned into a popular song, which... Tell me what you think. Okay. Last night I saw up on the stairs A little man who wasn't there He wasn't there again today Oh, how I wish he'd go away When I came home last night You're like, wow, it's really jazzy ghost. Yeah, I I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I I would play that at a party. Oh, the 30s. Yeah. (laughs) Final tidbit. So a life-size dummy was created to depict Jake Busey's dead body with that baseball bat shoved down his throat. And one of the studio's executives asked to keep the dummy as a souvenir and stored it in his office closet. But then one night, a cleaning woman came in and found it and got the shit scared out of her. Oh, my God. So they obviously got rid of it That's, shortly. Well, why Could would you, you keep it in a closet? Why? Yeah. Like, and I know if you got up close, it's clearly not real, but right. like from afar, it's pretty unsettling. You open the thing and you're not expecting to see that. No. You would recoil and run away. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You see. So, I tried looking into some cases of multiple personality disorder, also known as dissociative identity disorder or DID, mm-hmm. and they're not pretty, and they're not lighthearted fun. No. A common element is abuse or severe trauma at a young age, leading to an extremely difficult life, and struggling with like trying to whittle the personalities down through therapy to like integrate them into as few as possible that are well-adjusted and not right. going to harm themselves or others. Right. But let's talk about the mechanics of what it is and what we know. So one human brain can have two different personalities within it, And according to an imaging study from 2004, each personality uses its own network of nerves to help recall or suppress memories. Oh, interesting. So alternative personalities are usually developed by children who suffer severe trauma or abuse, and it helps them cope by cutting off difficult memories, making it seem as though it happened to somebody else. Right, that makes sense. Like when you said that it, as as a result of trauma, I was thinking it's gotta be just coping skills to not deal with it. It's definitely based in that kind of a thing. But there's obviously much more complicated things going on with this. This is not just as simple as like, it's not just like extreme coping. Right, no, it doesn't happen to everybody. There's more like brain chemistry going on, I would imagine. Exactly, exactly. So a team of researchers in the Netherlands used positron emission tomography, or a PET scan, Mm. as it's known, to scan the brains of 11 DID patients while they listened to autobiographical stories in each of their personality states. Mm. Mm. In one persona, patients recognized the traumatic history as their own, and it triggered emotional centers in their brain. The other personality did not consciously recognize the story as autobiographical, and it fired up a wider brain network that involved self-awareness, which would have been active in people with a single personality who were hearing a story about somebody else. Wow. So, like, this was measurable. Treatment for DID is extremely difficult because there's no medication that can just solve this problem. Like the lucky people who are able to cope with it are able to reintegrate some personalities back into one or a few harmless ones. But it's a serious struggle for people. 
Sometimes a personality will take over that's dominant and confident, and then another personality will exist that's extremely meek and shy. Hmm. And that got me thinking about, it does seem, at least in many of these cases, it developed originally as a defense mechanism. And I think we can all relate to being a different type of person or present a different side of our personality in a given circumstance. Oh, yeah. Or suppressing a terrible feeling as a coping mechanism and like be like, that was a younger me. That was a oh, different yeah. person. Constantly changing. And I'm not trying to say that people who suffer from this are just experiencing different moods like many people would mm -hmm. describe that as. It just sounds like many of the societal pressures that we all feel can make these situations much worse and more difficult than they already are. Right. I find this interesting because I'm going to be talking about the Myers-Briggs mm -hmm. personality test later. Right, right. I mean, and one of the biggest criticisms of it is the fact that, you know, there's these like 16 different personality types that right. people are supposed to be able to be filed into. But uh -huh. some of them are capable of existing at the same time. You mm -hmm. can be both mm -hmm. thinking and feeling, or you, you could be really introverted if you were studying for the LSAT, but you're going to be really extroverted if you're performing on stage later that uh, night. Right. You know I what was going to say, like, if I'm like in... In a party scenario, I retreat inward and feel mm -hmm. very self-conscious. Mm -hmm. In the scenario where I'm here on microphone talking to you, right. it's a different feeling. You're comfortable. But where, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like all of the personality disorders in general, it, it is hard to understand because it's like, how do you quantify a personality? That is because I'm going to get into the insanity defense yeah. in courts yeah. later on. And like that, it all boils down to how do you quantify this? Right, and right. it's almost impossible. And how do you know what somebody else's personal experience is? Right. You can't. Yeah. The best that we've done is be able to measure that like our brains are lighting up differently in this personality state than this other personality yeah. state. Well, yeah, because not only are you dealing with a brain but it's like each brain has had so many different experiences exactly. that you can't how do you control for every person's personal experience you can't you can't oh so that's where we're at <laughs> <laughs> all right this is a big drink for title section because oh, i'm talking about identity well i just oh. took a drink so yeah, perfect so there you go Okay, similarly to what I was saying in the opener, I was fascinated by the difference between identity and personality. Mm -hmm. We throw around identity a lot, but it's like, what does that actually mean about right. a person? Now, yeah. personality describes qualities individuals may have, like maybe being outgoing or shy. It's kind of internal characteristics that you might share with other people, but sharing an identity suggests some kind of active engagement on your part. Because okay. like we choose to identify with a particular identity or a group. So it's more of a choice that we're making. Yeah. And of course, it's like it acknowledges that there are certain social constraints or whatever that might be limiting, but there is some degree of agency, like I was mm. saying earlier. And again, it incorporates the importance of structures, like the forces beyond our control that shape our identities. Think about when you meet somebody for the first time and you ask questions about what they do or who mm -hmm. they are, or what the deal is. You're not only trying to figure out who they are, but what you guys have in common, what yeah. you don't in order to find common ground. And yeah, like how they identify themselves is right. an important part of like how you may relate to them. Right, exactly. Because identity basically combines both how you see yourself and how other people see you. Right. The trouble is, of course, sometimes you see yourself differently than how others see you. Right. So there's material, there's social, there's physical constraints that prevent us from successfully presenting ourselves in some identity positions, which... Some of those limits are the perceptions of others. A prime example that we encounter a lot in this country is criminal identities. For example, criminality, this idea that a young black male is just kind of criminalized. As an identity. Yeah, as an identity. Uh -huh. There's the fear. And, that, and there's actually like statistical evidence that shows that. But 
Overall, though, however limited it is, the concept of identity encompasses the idea that we can have some control over constructing yeah. what our identity well, is. Well, it reminds me of like the way people will wrap their identities around loving a certain band mm-hmm. or being really into a certain it, subject. Right. It's not just that you go to the local stadium every week to see a thing. It's like you're right. going specifically to see that team. Like, yeah, this it's is like who I'm yeah. the guy who loves the New York Giants. Yeah. Like, that's my thing. Totally. So how do we incorporate this into identity politics, which is all over the place in our media and our culture right now? And some people have an issue with it. And I imagine like anything, you know, with like an opinion, you your identity can become the opinion and everything gets all tied up in one in a bad way. And the idea becomes you almost. Right. right? And then you can't extricate yourself from it if you change your mind. Right. That's a real problem. So to look at it from kind of an evolutionary level too. It's fascinating because certainly societies have progressed the way that they have because of this notion of looking out for the little guy, you Mm -hmm. know, like looking out for the least among us. Mm -hmm. This is construed as a virtue of human morality, but it gets very wonky when an increasingly large number of groups believe that it's not the other groups, but they themselves who are the true little guys deserving of special treatment. Oh yeah, that's a problem. So in this case, the metric of truth in these groups becomes a kind of victimhood narrative, which is formulated to gauge whether a claim is true. This is also, in this particular article which I'll include the links this author refers to it as the victimhood Olympics which I refer to as like a pissing contest of suffering right. but, but basically yeah. like <laughs> if a group claims a truth but is viewed by others to not be properly victimized enough to be entitled to that truth then their truth is deemed to be false basically right. you're a straight white man what the fuck do you know about suffering right that kind of mentality or as a straight white man it's like oh I am the victim of right. society right. because like everything's changing or whatever and right, it's because like that's, that's ridiculous that's the next step because you have all of these people that are pushing back against the notion of identity politics and they're saying that that's the bad thing but the irony is that when a group narrative against identity politics is developed one must by definition develop its own narrative right. and hence its own identity <laughs> so my so, identity is no identity right exactly yeah. so it's like whenever you say that there's a them you're automatically saying that there's a, an, an right. us and you're participating in what is being I d- criticized <laughs> So, yeah, that's fascinating to me that there are people out there who are like, my identity is that I hate identity politics. Exactly. And like, I am but... identity politicking my way to that right. concept. Well, okay, so where did this where did identity politics come from? What's the reason, right? We know that cultural and religious beliefs offer psychological support to individuals and groups. Like mm-hmm. cultural narratives boost self-esteem by preventing people from mostly just thinking about death. I right. mean, icons, statues, holy symbols, uh-huh. clothing, whatever. Like these all come to signify not just the things themselves, but rather a sense of immortality mm. in a way. This guy is posturing that you that we're mitigating this death anxiety. Sort of. I mean, religion, I think, is the easiest way to point this out because you're like, you don't die at the end. Right. You go to a magical place. Right. But you could see how that could spread to other things in your life. It's like we're all just scared of death, so we cling to these symbols. You know, people, like, didn't the ancient Egyptians take a bunch of stuff with them to the grave? Exactly. It's like, you know, you can't take it with you, but we try because there's, like, a way of... Yeah, maybe there's something, too, like, we had a personal interaction with these objects and these objects will outlive us. Yeah. So it's a form of us touching immortality. Yeah, it's kind of like legacy mm-hmm. we've talked yeah. about, right? Like our bodies will not last forever, but mm. our ideas will. Yeah. So and the effect that we have on others. Right. So then what happens is we put so much importance on these that when these ideas or these cultural narratives are threatened, people act as if they themselves are being threatened. Right. So 
what's interesting though too is not just the psychological buffer that these kinds of things add, but they they also provide physiological support because it's been repeatedly shown in different populations and cultures that when mortality salience is triggered, i.e. a perceived threat is being made to one's cultural views or beliefs, individuals will endorse the use of violence to protect the self. Psychologists call this terror management theory. Interesting. So there's physiological evidence showing that group ostracism causes a, a physiological stress response similar to physical pain. From an evolutionary standpoint, wow. this makes sense because to ancestral humans, being outcasted by the group could mean a loss of resources, mates, status, and ultimately starving to death in the middle of nowhere. Right. So there's this evidence that shows that simply hearing dissonant messages can trigger a significant stress response, i.e. trigger warning, <laughs> which is all over the place, right? Yeah. Now, contrary to what has traditionally been thought, this has less to do with one's personal knowledge and more to do with group affiliation. So again, it's sort of this bigger idea of it is evolutionarily better for us to hold on to things that are going to keep the groups together because otherwise we'll be ostracized and outcast from the group or whatever. Right, and I feel like this is still like adjacent to the conversations we've had recently about the uncanny valley yeah. and the way that like we perceive the other that like may be sick or wrong mm -hmm. as like, and it's like we evolutionarily have decided to ostracize those people. Right. Oh, people are thinking that like their actual health and well-being and livelihood and I guess legacy is being challenged. Yeah, Whereas for me, I'm like, the pain response yeah. is actually that similar to this. And when your ideas are being challenged and it means that you're being challenged as a person and yeah. that like, if you overturn an idea it means that you made a terrible choice in your past right. like people don't want to admit that they were wrong right yeah well there's that element but um, i mean especially this physiological thing is is fascinating because i certainly had a physiological response when i heard that fucking song that we right. were talking about earlier yeah and i was like i felt kind of physical pain when listening to it yes it, like i felt like a punch in the gut people yes. say that all the time and then it always seems like super dramatic and over the top right but <laughs> yeah so well, that, that's like i've i even read about relating to the multiple personality disorder that like phrases like I was beside myself right I was falling apart like like things like that that are related to right. this are like I was broken hearted right we feel these things but it's actually based in, in a yeah. physiological response right because that's amazing you don't because you want to mitigate this death anxiety right. and you want you don't want like your tribe to be relegated to the dustbin of history or whatever. Yeah. But so this is also another reason why simply giving people the quote unquote correct information doesn't do anything because it's not really about what's true or not. It's right. about how you feel and it's about your own fucking identity. Yes. Now, another thing to consider is a lot of groups of people have come together in the last 200 years at a rate that's not been seen at any other point in human history. So, you know, for a long time, people were separated by oceans and this and that mm. and the other. And now we're all this kind of globalization. That's, right. I mean, that's his theory about why we might be all fucking going nuts. Like we're forced to confront these things yeah. that are physically painful to us. And we have to accept the knowledge that they are not different from us. Right. But... But we're fighting our little lizard brains. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. It's a, like there's part of me that feels like just the awareness. I, I feel like I'm so much mm. more aware of these random knee jerk reactions that I right. have. And I have the wherewithal to be able to be <laughs> like, ah, this is my my terror threat management right. or whatever at work. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've <laughs> talked about, too, like just simply being aware of these things are, is the first step to being able to combat them. Yeah. With different ways that we're fighting our own instincts and some ways in which we need to understand our own instincts. Mm -hmm. It's like it's just it's the constant struggle of humanity and yeah. society to push against those things 
and do the the thing that we know is correct regardless of our evolutionary instincts. Right. And what but because so many people do cling to culture mm-hmm. or they cling to tradition or they cling to the symbols or whatever, it's mm-hmm. again, I, I understand that it's this idea that maybe you want to be promulgated into the future and that's why you hold on to these things, but we're at this bizarre transition because we're starting to see like the emptiness behind some of the symbolism. Right. And we're just seeing that like man, a lot of this is, we've attributed meaning to things that don't mean anything. So it is a struggle, but although, okay, my last point about this with the identity politics thing, it's really hard to have an honest discussion about like whether or not identity politics is good or bad. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about like systems of legislation and government that have been written with those things in mind, like our government is identity politics. And so it's weird to be like, all right, Black people, what identity politics isn't going to work. It's like our laws were written in certain ways, and so we ha- have to combat that, but also not become more tribal and right. become more like anti each other. Yeah, which seems like it happens. I, I tend to personally believe that clinging to a tradition for tradition's sake is not a good thing. Yeah, and. That often resulted in, as I was growing up in a Jewish family, me being like, why are we doing this? Right. And it's like, because it reminds you of history and all these different <laughs> right. things. And I was like, I was like, but if it, you know, like, I think that there's a lot of traditions that are worth carrying on, but the ones that are harmless like that, like every year my family does this. Right are no problem, but they do relate to the traditions of like, well, it was always done this way, and so we continue to do it. And if you do that in all aspects of your life, then the world is never going to change. Right. Well, and also, again, like our identities don't exist in a vacuum. Like We have got to find a balance to maintain your own identity while accommodating other people. You're not the center of your own fucking universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes other people's cultures are going to make you feel uncomfortable. And it's about, again, finding that middle ground, appreciating each other, but acknowledging like, nobody has the exact right answer. And we're certainly not going to get any closer to that by being like, us, them, me, you. Yeah. Fuck off, you know? Shed your traditions, guys. <laughs> Shed them. So a big part of this movie is the question of, should this guy be tried for his crimes or is he insane? Right. So the insanity defense, which is claiming that a criminal should be found not guilty due to insanity, mm-hmm. is a super controversial thing for obvious reasons. Right. But it's actually rarely used, and even when it is, it almost never works. Mm. The theory behind the defense is that a person who is insane lacks the intent required to perform a criminal act because the person either does not know that the act is wrong or literally cannot control his or her actions even when that person understands that the act is wrong. Right. The problem is in the difficulty of defining insanity and showing circumstances that characterize that insanity. Right. Apparently, the defense has existed since the 12th century. Whoa. But originally, it wasn't an argument for the defendant to be found not guilty. It was a way to get a pardon or a smaller sentence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It wasn't until the early 19th century that an influential scholar named Isaac Ray wrote about the idea, and British courts developed what became known as the Wild Beast Test. Oh, God, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got to say up front about all this stuff, like the history of our understanding of people with mental illness is loaded with like wild beast talk. And, you know, it's... We've talked about lobotomies and shit on this show. Mm Mm-hmm. The way people, you know, anyway. with it, yeah. So, quote, if a defendant was so bereft of sanity that he understood the ramifications of his behavior no more than an infant, a brute, or a wild beast, a he would he would Sorry. not be held responsible for his crimes. Well, that just tells you also 
the time. Like, what is a brute? What right. is, what Ex- is <laughs> yeah. the legal definition of a brute? Yeah, what if you were just a brute? Yeah. So soon after this idea starts gaining momentum, an extremely important case in England called the Monoton case goes down. Monoton was a Scottish woodcutter who murdered the secretary to the prime minister, Sir Robert Peel, in an attempt to assassinate the prime minister himself. Whoa. Monoton apparently believed that the prime minister was the architect of a series of personal and financial misfortunes that had happened to him. During the trial, nine witnesses testified that he was insane and a jury acquitted him. Queen Victoria was not happy about this and asked the House of Lords to review the case. The judges reversed the jury verdict, but in their review, they decided that a defendant should not be held responsible for his actions if he could not tell that his actions were wrong at the time he committed them. Wow, okay. How not monotonous, am I right? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I just like the back and forth. I'm like, this is an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. And then the American courts embraced the monotonous rule and it became the basis of the insanity defense here and is still today in 25 states. I'm impressed that it happened so early just because of what you're saying, like our understanding and the way we dealt with it is so right. ridiculous. But there's a, an acknowledgement, like clearly this person does not have the agency. Right. But... I don't know. Well, that's the thing. Like, the insanity defense encompasses a couple of different things. Like, there's really those two main points of, does the person literally not understand that it's wrong, or Mm -hmm. do they know it's wrong and can't control themselves? Right, right. And so those two things are kind of like the main key pieces at this point in time. Gotcha. So there's a lot of public hostility about the validity of an insanity defense, but when it does succeed, usually the person is committed to a mental institution. Right. It's not like they're like, and so you're free, my friend. Right. And sometimes those mental institutions have conditions that are as bad or worse than a prison. Right. Obviously not always, but there are circumstances that can range to really horrifying. I did always find that interesting that it's like you're using the insanity defense to avoid the person going to prison, but then being institutionalized is not. Right. And when a person is held in a mental institution, institution, they usually don't know when they will be released, if ever. And cases where the insanity defense is absolutely legitimate and the person like really did not have control over their actions and everything, there's no good choices for them. Right. You know, and that person really does need help. And the idea that like a mental institution that they wind up in is going to be the right one is a luck of the draw. Yeah. In so many different ways. I honestly don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I feel like we had a somewhat similar conversation when we talked about capital punishment because it's mm. something that, you know, again, knee-jerk reaction. I could be like, no, absolutely not. Right. But it's like there's just the reality that in societies there are going to be people that either commit crimes or are so mentally ill that they can't help themselves. What do you do with these people and how do you help them? Well, that's the thing. To jump ahead a little bit, there's a lot of fundamental issues at heart here. Mm. Like, from the perspective of simple justice, when someone commits a crime, we take them out of society and punish them for it. Mm. We now understand that things are a lot more complex than we want to believe, and how we handle each individual case needs to be considered. Right. I think everyone agrees that if somebody is a danger to themselves or others, they should somehow be taken care of and removed from society right. in one way or another until th- this problem can be resolved. Totally. It's, it's about how, how you do that while maintaining dignity for that person. You know what exactly, I mean? Exactly. Exactly. So going back a little bit, John Hinckley Jr., who in 1981 shot President Reagan in the name of Jodie Foster. Oh, right pleaded insanity successfully, which caused a major outcry about the insanity defense. He spent 35 years in a mental institution and was just released a couple of years ago, 
though he's still heavily monitored. Mm -hmm. But because of the publicity of the Hinckley case, people called for the abolishment of what a lot of people saw as a loophole in the justice system. Right. And it leads to the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. Okay. Politicians were losing their minds, as they do, and psychiatrists were insisting on modifying the defense instead of abolishing it. Okay. Like, people like Dan Quayle were going like, we're coddling the criminals and we're doing all, you know, it's like, people were losing their shit. Oh, man. But professionals were saying, we need to modify it, don't get rid of it. This is It would be bad to get rid of this. So, among other changes, the Insanity Defense Reform Act eliminated the excuse that a defendant lacked the capacity to control his behavior. So that means people who knew that their actions were wrong but had no control over themselves could no longer use the defense. Interesting. Only people who literally cannot understand that the actions are wrong. Oh, man. Yikes. Okay. Another important change from that act was that before Hinckley, the burden of proof was on the prosecution to prove sanity beyond a reasonable Mm -hmm. doubt. But after that, it shifted to the defendant to prove with clear and convincing evidence that he was legally insane, Mm -hmm. which I think is a much more difficult thing to do. Yeah. There's a new element in the courts that has recently been introduced called the guilty but mentally ill verdict. Okay. Basically, this is a guilty verdict, but the defendant is entitled to receive mental treatment while institutionalized. Gotcha. But if he or she gets better, they still have to serve out their sentence, whereas somebody who successfully pleaded insanity would be released once it's determined that they're no longer a threat to themselves or others. Can I just clarify? So the guilty, but with mental illness, they is it while they're being incarcerated that they're able to have the mental health? Correct. They're not in an institution. Correct. Oh, gotcha. it, okay. it, I, I think it's like... In some capacity, as a prisoner, you're dealing with mental health instead of just being a prisoner. I find this fascinating because it just incorporates so many I mean, issues that we've covered with prisons and our, our justice system in mm. general. Because, again, like the idea that Dan Quayle was going nuts, it, it like we really want people to be punished. Yeah. Like we really want the justice. And yet what that means is like, like, truthfully, is there that much of a difference between someone going to jail and being in an institution. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, the sad truth is when society decides somebody shouldn't be in it, even temporarily, they become out of sight, out of mind. Totally. And it, like a one size fits all punishment or two sizes fits all punishment right. is not right. Even though like within that we have like different sentences mm-hmm. and stuff like that. The idea is prison or in mental institution. Right. Like we have to have better choices than this. Right. Like we may not be handling this even close to right right now, but I actually have hope Because we really do understand these things and understand mental issues better and more every year. Yeah. And in the long arc of time, I believe we're going to find a better, more individualized solution to this problem. But right now, it's really fucked up. But I appreciate the optimism. (laughs) I I do think, like, we do learn more every day. Yeah, we do. Science. All right, so we covered identity. Let's talk personality. Oh, fuck. One way to do that is by talking about the Myers-Briggs personality test. Oh, yeah, I had an ex who was super into this. Um, Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh. So (laughs) Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, or MBTI, and its spinoffs are among the most popular personality inventories in the world. They're widely used in organizational workshops to demonstrate how people with similar or different personalities interact with each other. I think it's like $20 million a year industry, something like that. I feel like it's astrology for the more scientifically minded. 
you're not far off, I would say, <laughs> because this test promises to tell you which of the 16 personality types that yours most resembles mm-hmm. slotted along a range of behavioral binaries. The binaries are E or I for extroverted or introverted, S or I for sensing or intuiting, mm-hmm. T or F for thinking or feeling, and J or P for judging or perceiving. For example, the INTP is the architect, the INFP is the healer, the mm-hmm. ENTJ is the commander, you know, so they, you know, it, uh, I'm already like revealing <laughs> my feelings about it too soon. But anyway, so at the same time, the MBTI has been the target of extremely harsh criticism from personality psychologists. And the main complaints about it are as follows. So Catherine Briggs and Isabel Myers were a mother and daughter who studied the mm-hmm. works of Carl Jung a hundred years ago, particularly his book, Psychological Types. They weren't social scientists. Briggs earned a degree in agriculture and had a deep interest in Jung. And before she wrote a survey that served as a prototype of Myers-Briggs, Myers had a degree in political science and wrote mystery novels. Hmm. Now, of course, some people out there are like, you don't have to be a trained psychologist to come up with, like, they were intelligent, it's fine. But I feel like if you don't have any background, there's... Well, as we've learned over the course of this show, anytime that you're putting people into definitive categories as a whole, no matter how many there are, if there's 16 or 32 or four... Yeah. Well, yeah. And and it's also important to consider that we we talked recently about how Jung was going through a period of like psychosis or whatever, and he believed in like alchemy and Mm -hmm. fucking numerology and stuff. He wasn't 100%. No, he wasn't all there, but... And certainly some academic psychologists have kind of dissed on him, but, you know, even still, it didn't sound like he even liked the idea of labeling people because even Mm. Malcolm Gladwell wrote in the New Yorker that Jung didn't believe that types were easily identifiable and he didn't believe that people could be permanently slotted into one category or another. Right. So what his theory did is give us at least types he gave us like the concept of introversion and extroversion, mm-hmm. which modern scientific personality psychologists still use today. So the major criticism that I've seen is that MBTI, it's not the inventory itself. It's the way that it's normally scored and interpreted because no personality inventory is reliable enough to sort people into the 16 categories. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, they say that like breaking yourself down to a four letter code is going to limit you in ways because you're oh going to be- think about what DNA is. It's literally breaking you down to a four-letter code. (laughs) But it's like, that's already been done. You don't have to do that in your life. No. But so, but again, to like at least take the building blocks of that, it's Mm -hmm. like it would be more scientifically advisable to score the scales continuously, right? Because basically it's like you're not either thinking or feeling. You can think and feel at the same time and it's more beneficial to at least like know where you are on the spectrum and acknowledge that like we're all a combination of all of those things. Well, like I was saying before, if I'm in a situation where I'm at like a party and I'm more introverted, I'm in a different state of the Myers-Briggs thing than I am when I'm here on this podcast. Well, because that was one of the other criticisms too is like you can get different results based on week to week. I and mean, it's like five years ago, I was a totally different type of person who approached things in a very different right. way. So right. it changes over time. Right. Like we actually go through these different parts in our life where we're kind of different people. But mm-hmm. even, I mean, it basically turns into the fucking like Harry Potter sorting hat. I'm right, like, right. I was yeah. Hufflepuff once. I'm <laughs> Gryffindor a couple. That's like, I had to do best out of three. Right. I'm Gryffindor. So good for you. Don't worry about She's that. She's a hero. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, 
certainly having this kind of spectrum or at least like knowing how extroverted you are or whatever, it's not quite as exciting and like, ah, that's me as right. looking at your horoscope and being like, I'm so Aries. Like, right, I'm right. so extroverted. I'm introverted, so leave me alone. Well, that's like, the thing. It's like and then it starts detailing things about you and you're like, oh my God, that does describe me. Totally. I, as you've said before with numerology many, many, many episodes ago, yeah. it's like, I am a good person right. who thinks of others and likes to, you know, it's like all these right. per- positive things. Totally. Well, because that's the other thing. Too, I am is, creative and, and imaginative. Yeah. Like the MBTI is decidedly positive. It doesn't like separate right. people into adaptive or maladaptive or like functioning, dysfunctional, uh-huh. stable or neurotic. It's all like pretty positive shit. Right. And again, like it just totally limits you. If you if you are really like, this is my path, this, this is my code, you're just inherently going to limit yourself from from different mm-hmm. possibilities. So what I've read is the best alternative to the Myers-Briggs is the big five mm. personality types. Are you familiar? No. So these operate along five continuums, conscientiousness, agreeability, emotional stability, openness to experience, and extroversion. These big five traits have been observed by social scientists and they have been tested in the lab and in the field. And it also predicts outcomes like, you know, because a lot of times people use these Myers-Briggs for like work reasons like a way for you to be able to provide insight into yourself and Mm -hmm. into others and stuff like that I haven't done any of the big five shit like part of me doesn't care right like part of me is like I don't need this to well because it's like it's like it's gonna tell you who you are yeah and then you're gonna be different right because of that like a test is gonna fucking tell you who you are no and sometimes those tests will be like oh this personality type is more compatible with this other personality type for relationships and then it's like if you're basing it on that shit then you might as well come up with any excuse to not date somebody you know it's like yeah Opposites attract sometimes, and then sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. It's almost like everybody's an individual. Right. So you can say that, like, conscientiousness predicts success, and openness predicts creativity and all of this shit, but really, it's like, when people are pursuing their own personal projects, Mm -hmm. or when they're, like, actively engaged with something, like, that's the best way that you're able to gauge how somebody is. Right. Because, again, to my earlier example, like... I'm super extroverted, but if I was studying for a fucking important test, I would be quiet and I would not want anybody to talk to me. Right. Most of the time, I am very loud and boisterous. Mm -hmm. When I go to my yoga class, I'm like, don't fucking talk to, I don't want to talk to you. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's disingenuous to try to break people down into categories. And I'm going to say it again, girls on Tinder, stop. (laughs) Stop with the Myers-Briggs codes. So a lot of this movie takes place at a motel. That's right. So I looked into the first motels okay. and the history of the motel. Cool. So the Motor Hotel mm. or motel. That's where it comes from. That's all I need. <laughs> That's all you needed. Such, yeah, such I mean, over. I was like, oh, got to look into that. <laughs> no, the, it was truly a 20th century thing. Okay. The rise of the automobile in the 20s and 30s allowed people to start hitting the road and experiencing the country. Right. So people needed a place to stay during their long journeys that were on these two-lane highways like Route 66 and stuff like that. Yeah, in the middle of fucking nowhere. And the motorist's hotel was born. Built around the idea that somebody wants to get out of their car and go directly to a room for one night, for like a one-night stay. Yeah. But before this, people would stay on farms if they could find them, yeah. or temporary teepees or tents that they would do on the right. side of the road. Or just fucking sleep in your car. Or just sleep in your car, exactly. So there was a clear market for a motel, and as the car grew in popularity, they started doing stuff like adding on a gas station and other things that somebody on a road trip might need. Right, right, right. 
And dealing with a downtown hotel when you're on the road is a pain in the ass. Yeah. The idea exploded, and by the 60s, at least 61,000 motels were operating. Then they started getting a bad name. By the 70s, the term... Psycho? Did Psycho have anything to do with it? Well, Psycho was a big part of it, I think. I think Psycho was like the start of this whole bad name. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt, because like the whole time you were talking, I was like... It makes sense that it was a 20th century thing, mm-hmm. and let's play on the kind of urban legend you're mm-hmm. pulling off on the side of the road, creepy Ex- house. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, so like the idea of psycho makes a lot of sense in that context. Yeah. And then they started getting a bad name because by the 70s, the term cockroach motel or roach motel yeah. was well known. Totally. By the 90s, new freeways had been built that bypassed a lot of the old motels. Right. So traveling around the country, you stopped going on these two lane Route 66 style highways and started going on the interstate freeways. Yeah. Bed bugs, man. And then, well, yeah, bed bugs. <laughs> and then with the rise of the internet, meaning both hotels that have websites you can find and hotels that offer the internet. Oh, my motels were just dying dude do you think that with airbnb motels are going to just be like eradicated forever absolutely the motel is more gone than ever because like by 2012 there were only 16,000 motels left and more are going every day which is down from the peak of 61,000 motels in the Mm -hmm. 60s and the motel to our generation i think really brings up the idea of pay by the hour rooms yeah totally sleaziness just super cheap crappy lodging But apparently it was this glorified part of Americana when people were first able to set out on the road and mom and pops all over the country saw an opportunity to serve them. Hell yeah, because really it's like you just need a bed, maybe some coffee, Mm -hmm. whatever, but... It just kind of dilapidated it. Yeah, before, well, before like the Holiday Inn Corporation developed and you can Yelp any hotel in the area and Airbnb... At this point, like it really was a 20th century thing. Yeah. That's fascinating. And there's something beautiful about that time and that mode of travel. I started thinking about it like it was the Orient Express for America. Right. Like this time when travel was new and you could go to a place and like everything was changing surrounding travel. You hit the open road, but you got to sleep somewhere. No one wants to always camp. And And instead of the elegance of the Orient Express, how American is it to have the motel? Totally. Your car, (laughs) your Model T. I've been in a few. I mean, the fact that I didn't know that motel was motor hotel. Hotel, is, yeah. But I mean, what's more 20th century than that? Exactly. Oh. All right. One of the lines in this movie is, they're coming back to life like sea monkeys. Yeah, I wrote that in reference down. to some kind of burial ground. I just scoped over it. I wrote down the quote, but I wanted to look into sea monkeys. Okay. And I did. Fascinating shit. This was like a cultural fixture that I've just like, hey, they exist, but... Yeah, people had them like ant farms, all kind exactly. of, like they had them in their own home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids in their bedrooms. <sighs> Fucking weird, man. So in 1957, a man by the name of Harold von Braunhut hmm. became fascinated with a species of brine shrimp known as Artemia salina that he saw being sold as pet food in a pet store. Hmm. And these shrimp live in salt lakes or salt flats, and when the water evaporates, the shrimp go into a state of suspended animation. This is known as cryptobiosis, which I did not know was a thing, but it's fucking cool. How long can they stay in this? I'm not sure. Okay. This is one of those, like, I'm going to look into cryptobiosis in the future, but, okay. like, sea monkeys are just such a man-made creation in a lot yeah? of ways. Wow. Yeah, it's bizarre. So anyway, the, in this cryptobiosis state, the animals are in a protective cyst-like casing until water is added. Life finds a way. Those are probably going to overtake the world once oh, we're all gone. Yeah. Right? 
Now, with the help of a marine biologist slash microcrustacean expert, mm. <laughs> Von Braunhut figured out a way to treat tap water with a mix of nutrients, which he called magic crystals, that would revive the shrimp in a tank at home. Mm. Now, when he began selling his shrimp in the 60s, he marketed them under the name Instant Life, and the kit sold, <laughs> yeah, it sold for 49 cents. And you got the packets of shrimp and then the little packets of nutrients and the food the shrimp would eat. And you had to provide your old goldfish bowl, but you'd pour it in there. And this was around the time of Uncle Milton and his ant farms. So it was around the time that there was this idea that you could just like sell science to kids and it was really cool or whatever. Now, despite the success of Uncle Milton's ant farms, chain stores like Whammo that invented the hula hoop, they wouldn't touch Von Braunhut's shrimp partly because of Whammo's instant fish toy disaster. They had... What? thought that they were going to create an instant fish. I didn't look into that, but I wonder <laughs> if it's something similar. I don't know. So then in 1962, Von Braunhut started buying up advertising space in comic books, and he would write the copy himself, which promised a bowl full of happiness. Mm-hmm. And he's quoted as saying that he bought 3.2 million pages in comic book ads a year. This is like Archie, Casper the Friendly Ghost, uh-huh. fucking whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so he marketed this directly to kids, which would bypass parental cautions because mm. all people had to do was send the money to the address in the ad, and the shrimp would arrive in the mail. Brilliant. So he called them sea monkeys because they have a monkey-like tail, but they weren't marketed that way. He's There was instant life, but then he sometimes called them exotic Saskatchewan brine shrimp. So in 1964, the instant life name changed to sea monkeys. And then Von Braunhut hired this comic book artist, Joe Orlando, who would later go on to become vice president of DC Comics and associate publisher of Mad Magazine. Mm. So he hired him to draw the like 1950s-esque humanoid sea monkeys. Have you ever seen the ads? I have seen that picture. It's like six-pack, yeah. like Arnold Schwarzenegger, sea monkey, with like a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, this is where it gets fucking weird, man. So originally, keeping the sea monkeys alive was really tough because typically just two of the shrimp would live for a month. Mm-hmm. And he even fucking sold people sea monkey life insurance policies. What? Which were good for two years after purchase. Anyway, so then the, he and the microcrustacean guy, they began crossbreeding different shrimp from the, the Artemis genus to make this hardier species, which they then named Artemia NYOS after the New York Oceanic Society where they were created. So this is how it, how it works. The first packet is a water purifier and conditioner group, which is made up of, of a number of salts necessary for the creation of the proper saline environment. Okay. This includes a drying agent like calcium chloride and an oxidizing agent like sodium thiosulfate thiosulfate, and some brine shrimp eggs. So then the first group is added to the tap water and you have to let it stand for 24 to 36 hours at room temperature. And then the second group is comprised of additional salts for the saline environment, food for the hatched brine shrimp, additional brine shrimp eggs, and then a drying agent such as dried Epsom salt and a water-soluble dye. So then the second group is added to the aged water where the dye colors in the water give the hatched brine shrimp of the first group easier visibility which kind of makes it look like instant life oh that's okay so it's like adding shrimp that become shrimp later yeah to make it look like a bunch more ha- showed up yeah, all but at once you add some dye and it's like oh it's once i added this powder and yeah. turned it blue or whatever the fuck this is a crazy idea Isn't to me it that fucking crazy that you can like freeze dry or not freeze dry but like have these this life that's dried out and dead but you just add water well the fact that it exists in general right that there's right. like some kind of shrimp that in salt flats i mean it makes right. sense in super dry or drought-like conditions. It's like hibernation almost in its kind of way. Well, it makes me think about like life as it started on Earth and right. like could 
something like this exist in space and then appear in a, the right environment and then it gets woken back up. Right. Well, we were just talking about on our on the Howard the Duck episode, I think, I right? Think of so. like some something about like what's going to be the dominant species if humans right. die out. Mm-hmm. It's like this kind of shit. This, this kind shit of shit. that can just like exist in suspended animation, this cryptobiosis or whatever, mm-hmm. and then just a little bit of water and there you get like oh humans my God. can't do that shit. I wish we Jeez. could. Last few fun monkey facts, Ooh. sea monkey facts. Mm-hmm. They breathe through their feet. What? Uh, they're born with just one eye, but they grow two more upon reaching maturity. So they have three eyes? This is like, yeah. This is just like a guy at home creating some fucking shrimp. You're like, some whatever. alien shit. They're apparently attracted to light. And if you like tap on the glass, they'll be attracted to that. Oh. They're apparently not harmful to the environment because they cannot survive outside of this magic crystal water. Okay. Males have whiskers under their chins where females don't. Okay. Females will develop a pouch when they're pregnant, but they don't need to mate. Another reason why they're going to own the world world. is because (laughs) they can fertilize their own eggs, which is a process known as parthenogenesis. Holy shit. So when the eggs hatch, the shrimp are tiny, like a dot, like a period at the end of the sentence, basically. Mm -hmm. And then, (laughs) this is fucking bizarre. In 1998, the space shuttle Discovery carried John Glenn, who was 77 years old, he was participating in a study on the effects of space on the elderly at the right, time. So right. it was him and 400 million sea monkey eggs. Oh, yeah. They spent nine days in space. And then when they hatched eight weeks later, there were no ill effects. So they can survive in space. Uh-huh. And finally, this is the best. The Amazing Live Sea Monkeys aired on CBS in 1992. <laughs> the series starred Howie Mandel oh as a God. professor who accidentally enlarges three sea monkeys to human size. Oh, my God. Honey, I blew up the sea monkeys. Holy shit. Is this live action? <laughs> it was live action, and it aired in the U.S. and Australia and lasted 11 short episodes. I'm going to need to see some clips yeah, from that. Yeah, I would love to see The Amazing Live Sea Monkeys. I wonder if they looked like the family in the comic books. I assume that they looked like, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm picturing. Right. Like, what is this, an amalgamation of 1992? I'm like, okay, honey, I shrunk the kids. Uh-huh, yeah. Fucking, yeah, like, what else? <laughs> what else? I, Howard the Duck is yeah. thrown in. I'm just kidding. Elf. <laughs> it's like, it's like a combination. It's like weird science and mm-hmm. gremlins and Well, it's fucking... like that episode of The Simpsons where like with Lisa's tooth and she puts yeah. it in and like a whole world yeah. of people grow in like there's like a society on the tooth. I don't know what the fuck I thought about sea monkeys my whole life. I like, well, because it's clearly a marketing ploy, right? I mean, you're selling a bowl full of happiness or whatever. And mm-hmm. like this whole idea of selling shit to kids and I think I thought that it was all fake and whatever but it's like Uh these motherfuckers are real shrimp that exist and live and they're not they're not monkeys but they're they're definitely life (laughs) they're definitely instant life did you have any favorite lines I didn't actually write down any favorite lines but you know, we always look at our like topics to discover in the future right, right. In, in addition to cryptobiosis or whatever. I just wrote baseball down the throat. Question oh, yeah. mark? you mean baseball bat? Down yeah, the throat? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep saying that. But like, is but, that doable? I mean, yeah. with enough force, sure. I wrote the quote, we all share the same birthday. But that's just because I just love that realization. Moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You? Yeah, you? Yeah, uh-huh. like, well, we Me figured it too. out. And it's like, what does that even mean? I know, you would think with a, a movie like this, well, because I know that John Cusack's character is reading, like, Being in Nothingness by Jean-Paul Sartre. Right. So I was, I was hoping that there would maybe be some more, you know, poignant lines about identity or, like, <laughs> being in nothingness, but no. Not no. to be found. No. But... I enjoyed this. I enjoyed it. With that, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joya Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and you can find us here next week 
doing face-off. Oh, my God. You are so welcome. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. <laughs> Bye. See ya.